0: And if you don't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter number 31. The book of 1 Samuel in chapter number 31. We are now at the very end of our first part of the series of the life and ministry of David. We'll go on Wednesday night and hit the very first part of 2 Samuel chapter 1 on Wednesday night as we kind of just conclude this Part, and then once again, when we pick up the series again, we'll start with David moving towards the throne. And so now we're reaching to the end where Saul is dead. We'll take a little bit of break next Sunday morning. We'll begin a brand new series of the pastoral epistles, going through uh, the book of First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, walking through those pastoral epistles through the summer, and then at the end of the summer, we'll be picking this series back up again and finishing it up towards the new year. But as we finish off this series, it's been a long time coming that David has been promised the throne. Many things have happened, and in the meantime, King Saul has reigned for 40 years. Now, as we walk through this series, sometimes time escapes us, but to think about this from the very beginning of the series up to now has covered a span of 40 years. Saul has been on the throne for a while. For most people, they don't even remember a time where there wasn't a king. They're so used to Saul being on the throne. By the way, I think today is Queen Elizabeth's birthday today, 93, somewhere on there. It could be wrong, but pop back up. But for a lot of people, Saul was the only king that they knew as right, wrong and different. The different things that he had uh, occurring, (coughs) but he was the king. But now he's reached the end of his life. And let's pick it up and let's see the events that occur And First Samuel chapter 31. First Samuel 31. Notice with me in verse number 1. First Samuel 31 and verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain at Mount Geboah. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab, and <coughs> Malachorosera, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was wound, sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul to his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword, and thrust me through, there, uh, through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through, and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men in the same day together. And when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley... And they that were on the other side of Jordan saw that the men of Israel fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsake the cities, forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And it came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen in Mount Geboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent. "...into the land of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. And they put on his armor in the house of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul... All the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, Bethshan, and came to Jabesh and burnt them there. And they took their bones and buried them under a tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. And then in this count, what we find here, if you don't mind, notice in 1 Samuel chapter 31, 1 Samuel chapter 31, notice verse 6 just a very uh, simple phrase, Saul died. And with this, we want to study the death of Saul. The death of Saul. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we're winding down this series, a lot of narrative have occurred in the last several weeks. A lot of things going up. Moving up to this point, to where Saul is removed from the throne And David has become king. And as we go through here, let us just see the events that occurred and be able to apply it to ourselves, all the meanwhile remembering there is a God of hope. I'm asking that you would be an encouragement, help this text to be understood. And again, as for me, fill me with your spirit. You guide and direct. You settle me into what you would have me to do. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. As we begin this part in 1 Samuel chapter 31, the first thing I'd like to point up to you as we kind of cover the events is the events of Saul's death. The events of Saul's death. Now where we had left off is that the Philistines were on the march. Remember they had kicked David out and said we don't want David in. We, the last thing we need is for him to turn behind on us and, and kill all of us. We don't want him in our ranks. So they sent David home but they marched on Saul. And Saul As the Israelites met with the Philistines, the battle raged on. Notice with me in verse 1. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. So we can see the battle's not going well for the Israelites. They're standing in formation. Uh, The Philistines break their ranks. They begin to take off and run. The Philistines just hunt them down and begin to slay them. Verse 2, and the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons. Now, uh, that's kind of the goal in a war is to find the enemy king, to find the enemy, to capture the leader, to capture the general, to take care of them. And so their main goal was to go after Saul. Their main goal was to get rid of Saul's sons. So they were following hard. They were looking for him. They, were, they didn't care about the little guys. They would take care of them if they had to. But their main objective was to go after Saul. Their main objective was to go after uh, Saul's son. So they had pressure on them. They're moving. They were pre- Maybe they're trying to keep together. Notice what happens in again. And in verse number three. And the battle went sore against Saul... And the archers hit, or sorry, in verse number two, we could see the Philistines actually caught up to Jonathan and his brothers, Saul's sons. And Jonathan, the great hero, dies. He's perished. He's killed by the Philistines. Saul is able to get away. And in my mind, I can almost see Jonathan say, Dad, you got to go. I'll hold him off. And Dad, go. And pushes Dad out of the way. By the way, Saul at this time is an old man. He's 70 something, almost 80 years old. Out in the battlefield, Jonathan's standing and said, move, dad, go. Jonathan's no spring chicken himself. He's probably about in his 50s. Said, all right, dad, we'll take it. Again, that's how I see it in my mind, that he gives his life. One last heroic thing for for Jonathan to save his dad. Stays to try to fend off, spare some time for Saul. And Saul and his armor bear kind of go hide in the woods. They're out in the mountains, in the woods, kind of... uh, Trying to stay away from the Philistines. Now it's Saul that's being hunted. Notice with me if you don't mind in verse number three. And the battle went sore against Saul. And the archers hit him. And he was sore wounded of the archers. Now with the archers here they're launching arrows uh, out Uh, Probably not seeing exactly where Saul's at, but maybe Saul's walking. He gets hit by a couple arrows and he knows it's not good. It's not enough to kill him, but it's enough to kind of hobble him, which is not good if you're in a chase. If someone's chasing after you, to be any kind of wounded is going to slow you down. So he comes to a decision within his mind. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number four. Then said Saul to his armor bearer, draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. So he turns around, looks at his options, knows the Philistines are going to catch up to him. And he takes, he says, hey, you know what? I'd rather you kill me than the Philistines get me. All right, put me through. Now we'll get to the armor bearer in a second. But may I kind of point out something that's not quite said? That if Saul had enough time to consider his options, he had enough time to view the world around him, to see the Philistines coming up, to see he didn't have much time, or he didn't—he um, may not get out of this, isn't it stand to reason that he had time to get right with God if he chose to? Yeah. He could have taken the time and said, You know, God... I know I'm reaching the end. Maybe I should take this time to let you know I messed up. Uh, I didn't do what I was supposed to. Uh, you know, you almost think that even as he sees death approaching, perhaps he could have used that time a little bit more wiser. Don't you think that God would have honored him a little bit more if he would have said, you know, the Philistines are coming in with me. Maybe I should just take some time. I'm going to get captured anyways. Let's get right with God. But instead, he says, all right, Kill me. Forget this. (laughs) Let it out of here. What we see here is that he spent his death like he did his life selfish and proud. He didn't want the Philistines to get him while he was alive. The worst thing in his mind was to be kept alive by the Philistines and let them parade him around. Uh, The Bible talks about the book of Job, verses 20 and 21. It says this saying that people who are bitter in the soul long for death but it cometh not what it carries the idea here is that those who despair of the mercy of god they will jump into the hell that's before them to escape the hell that is within them think about that that he would rather jump into the hell that's before him to escape the hell that's within him how many people that we've come into uh, that we come work with That they say, I just want to escape from here. I want to end it all. I I can't stand living with myself. I can't stand the conviction. I I messed up. And we'll deal with these type of folks. And for us who are Christians who understand that there is something after you die. There is a real place called heaven. And a real place called hell. And that when you die, you go to one of those places, basing if you've ever accepted the gift of God, which is Jesus Christ. You know the worst thing that could happen to a person who's suffering is for them to die and go to an awful place called hell? A short-term solution with long-term effects. Sometimes when we watch the news and we'll hear about some famous person committing suicide, and the sympathy comes up. And again, we're heartbroken for anyone who ends up taking their life. And it's even doubly so when we hear people that say, well, you know, at least they're not suffering anymore. And we weep and cry and say, no, their suffering's just begun. That death was not an escape for them. Death was not an escape. Because we understand there is something beyond this life. Sometimes people will look at this life and say, this is so horrible, I can't stand it anymore. And so as the, the person who gave that quote said, they'll jump into the hell before them to escape the hell that's within them. What a horrible place that is. And again, we're, we're very empathetic of somebody who's going through their own, excuse the light term, hell inside of them. And we understand there are people that do have things going on. Conviction, sin, um, addictions, uh, turmoil, consequences. People have these things and sometimes they build up. And, you know, someone may look at that weight and see that it's nothing. But to that person, it may be everything. And we are sympathetic. But I want to tell those people, if we could get a hold of them, there's hope. As long as God lives, there's hope. As long as God lives, there is hope. In the Bible, since we're now mentioning the subject, there are six suicides in the Bible. Now, may I also frame this, that suicide is different than giving your life. For example, a soldier who sees a grenade and jumps on the grenade, he didn't commit suicide. He uh, gave his life in protection of others. Uh, that's a different type of thing. That soldier, if you gave him a choice, he wouldn't have want to die, but he gave his life for the protection. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about someone who decides to end their life to end the misery, to end the situation that they're in. And there are six suicides in the Bible. Some of these people may be familiar, some may not. Abimelech, who is in the book of Judges. You have Saul right here, followed by his armor bearer, which we'll cover in just a second. You have Epiphothel, which we'll cover in the second part of the, second, uh, of the David series. Epiphothel was one of uh, David's advisors. He committed suicide. Zimri, who was one of the kings of Samaria, Israel, the northern kingdom, he committed suicide. In fact, he did it in a glorious fashion. He burned down the whole palace around him so no one could touch him. And then, of course, the most famous suicide in the Bible would be Judas Iscariot. And so there are six suicides mentioned in the Bible, whether you want to put stock into it or not. It's interesting, just interesting, that if you were to look at all of these examples that the Bible gives of people who committed suicide, that all of these people were people of very dubious character. And all of these six people were very spiritually bankrupt. Again, we're not saying that everyone who commits suicide is spiritually bankrupt. We're just saying it's interesting that the Bible records those who committed suicide as spiritually bankrupt. But that does ask the question, why do people commit suicide? To those who want to commit suicide, it appears or it perceives that their life is so hopeless or so complex that he feels the great need to escape. And that's what it goes up to is that word hopelessness. Hopelessness, that they feel hopeless. I can't get out of my situation, I feel hopeless. It's not gonna get better, I feel hopeless. My health is not gonna get better. My finances aren't gonna get better. Uh, You know, when people lose their house, uh, that's often a ha- high time when someone uh, breaks up in a relationship. That hopelessness, that feeling, that complexity—all of those things turn into factors during the time there. We know that in our country there are, thr- uh, thr- excuse me, thirty thousand successful suicide attempts every year. Three times as many women ought- will attempt suicide. However men will be three times more likely to succeed in suicide. Partly because men uh, are usually fairly violent in the way that they do it. But it is what it is. Also, just doing statistics, you know, sometimes people uh, have a different view. Professional men, like doctors, lawyers, police officers, preachers, professional men... Are more likely to commit suicide than any other group, professional men. Uh, it's not just people that sometimes people have an image of homeless or out of a job or living in someone's basement. It's actually professional men who are more likely to commit suicide. And whether it's interesting or not, the people least likely to commit suicide are farmers. Think about that. Farmers have the lowest suicide rate of anybody. Just because a different type of lifestyle, different work ethic. Who knows what the factors are. It's just interesting just going through it. Now, at the root of most suicides, remember we talked about symptoms and we talked about root. At the root of most suicides is depression. And we explained this morning that all depression has a cause. And that if you could find the cause, you could help cure the depression. So let's kind of walk through this trail. We understand that everything has a root, so we have a cause that goes to a symptom. There's often a root cause to a root symptom. Then there is a symptomatic cause and a symptom of that symptom. It can kind of branch out. Suicide is going to be the very tip that a lot of times suicide is going to be because of depression. Depression is going to have its own root cause. So again, I'm tracing this down saying that since all depression has a cause and all depression can be worked with if we find the cause of it, that means all suicides can be theoretically, philosophically prevented if we help them with their depression. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to do, I'm trying to build up not just a theological, not just a philosophical, but also a clinical thing That people can be helped no matter how hopeless your situation is. All suicide is preventable because there's hope. There is always hope. That our purpose is when we're working with someone is to show them the hope. And of course the greatest hope they could have is the God of hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I know this is a little bit more dour of a thing, but this isn't supposed to be fun. We're looking at someone who decided to end his life because of the circumstances that he was in. And God can provide hope. So we again, we're talking about the events of Saul's death. But as Saul goes to commit suicide, he tries to get his armor bearer to help him out. His armor bearer says no. So Saul takes the need to take his spear. It's always Saul's spear. He, what he does is he lays on his spear and kind of falls into it he falls on a sword. That's where that expression falling on your sword came from. That's how they would commit suicide. So they would put the spear, the sword against something and kind of fall against it. Um, but he took his life. But one thing that people who decide or want to commit suicide with sometimes fail to think about is the effects of the suicide. Which brings us to the second thing, not only the events of Saul's death, but the effects of Saul's death. The effects of Saul's death. Nobody lives in a bubble by themselves. Nobody lives in a bubble. Your life affects other people whether you realize it or not. Most of you don't realize how much People look at you, even the old church. Younger Christians will look at some of you older Christians and look for you as an example. Some of these children look at you and think you're the greatest thing who ever lived, even if you're not. Neighbors look at you and say, oh, that's a Christian couple, and they try to emulate you even though they may not know you. They, they may watch over you. Your neighbors know if you're in church tonight, and they know when you're home and know, hmm, I wonder what's wrong with them. They, they watch you. They see your patterns. They see the things going on. You have relatives, nieces, nephews, grandkids, people who watch you. Nobody lives their life in a bubble, and your life affects someone else, whether good or or bad. And the same thing with a suicide. In a suicide, the absence of someone's life leaves a void, and it does affect other people. May I show you just a couple things in here? Uh, Saul's life. Now Saul was a high profile man. He was the king. And so his effects are going to be a little bit different. But we could draw some things. First of all, if you don't mind, as we look at the effects of Saul's life. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number five. And when his armor bearers saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. You know what we see here is a truth. Suicide discourages others. Suicide discourages others. Saul committed, died. Now the armor bearer technically wasn't hit by an arrow. He he was fine. But because Saul committed suicide, he now said, well, maybe this is the course I need to go. And he followed suit. Suicide always discourages other people because a big thing of dealing with folks who have loved ones who have committed suicide, there's always that question, why? And that's the question that can't be answered because they're not there to ask, why? Why did you feel so hopeless that this would happen? Why did you feel that you came to this? Why didn't you come to me? And then they'll start working on themselves. Did I miss the warning signs? Did I miss something? Is there something I could have done to prevent it? And what happens is that that one person's death ripples out to hit other people. And they start asking questions that they cannot answer within themselves. It's just natural. Could I have done more? Why did they feel the need? And oftentimes, that effect discourages others around them. Of course, recent days, we have had high-profile celebrities commit suicide, whether you liked them or not, and a famous one, Robin Williams. Most people didn't even see that he was depressed. He always had a smile on his face. He did quotes all the time while he was alive that said that the most depressed people are the ones that you see that seem to be the most happiest. They've learned how to put on a happy face. And that shocked a lot of people when he finally saw the need to take his own life. That uh, even people today still kind of try to sympathetic. Some trying to put explanations. But it affects others around you. Sometimes when people have a desire to commit suicide, they'll kind of say, well, nobody will miss me. Well, that's always a lie. Someone will miss you. Someone cares enough to notice if you're gone. And... and (coughs) you never know who's there in effect. Now again, I know not the most encouraging Sunday night message, but it is in the text and it's things that we need to hit about here that suicide does discourage others. Notice if you don't mind as it goes on as Saul's has very special effects. Notice with me in verse 7. And when the men of Israel were on the other side of the valley and they saw that the other side of uh, they were on the other side of Jordan, saw that the men of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt with them. So not only does it, um, <laughs> as we're still covering the idea that it discourages others, when Saul gave up his life and is in it, <laughs> um, His sons were also dead. The people said, oh man, we're really going to lose. They got discouraged and they just gave up the cities. They didn't fight for them. They turned them over to the enemy. Here you go. You take it. And they fled and hid and tried to protect themselves. Notice as it goes on, uh, verse number eight. And it came to pass that on the morrow, you know, it took a whole day for the Philistines to finally catch up to Saul and find out where he was at. Think about that a whole day. Everyone else found a hidey hole. Couldn't Saul be in your imagination if he wasn't fatally wounded, which the Bible indicates a couple different times, he wasn't fatally wounded by the arrows. They were just slowing him down. The inconvenience, I mean, an arrow in me would probably inconvenience me, right? <laughs> but he, it wasn't fatal. Given a whole day before the Philistines found his body... Isn't it reasonable to deduce that perhaps he could have found a bush, a cave, something to go hide? I mean, David was hiding in the area, and he found somewhere to hide from Saul for a while. They were actively searching for him. Couldn't he have held up for a while, got some help, got some reinforcements, got some A whole day before they found his dead body, if he was alive, there was a lot more that could be done. I'm just building up a case that it wasn't the end for Saul. He did it. Now, for his point of view, he felt hopeless, and this was the best solution. But as we look at reality, there was plenty of time for him to get away. Notice, they cut off his head and stripped his armor and sent into the land of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. So what they did is they finally found Saul. They took his head. They took his armor and they put it inside of the temple of Dagon, their God that they worshipped. And they said, look at what our God did. He defeated our enemy. And now they're able to brag that their God is more powerful than the God of Israel. And the enemy is able to use it. Don't you understand that when people commit suicide, especially if they have some sort of religion, or maybe they're really saved. By the way, let me put this. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin. Someone could be saved and yet so discouraged that they feel like they could take their life. Uh, For someone who commits suicide, if they've accepted Jesus Christ as their savior, they're forgiven of all sins, including that sin. They'll be going to heaven. So I'm not saying, don't ever tell someone that someone who committed suicide that they're not in heaven if, they, if they've accepted Jesus as their savior. We want to give them hope. Now again, we're just trying to explain what's going on here. But for someone who says that they're saved, um, you guys probably don't know him, but there was a famous preacher within our ranks Um, several years ago, committed suicide. and It put ripples all throughout. We were like, I just talked to him. He was doing fine. What happened? He's a pastor of a big church. Uh, What's going on? It always gives cause for God's enemies to make accusation. when, When a Christian decides that I can't trust my God of hope, I have to be done. You understand a lot of people who hate God use those as occasions to accuse God that God's not good. And let's prove it. These guys couldn't trust God in the midst of his problems. Notice as it goes on. (coughs) Verse number 10. And they put on the armor of the house of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. So what they did is they took Saul's body and they said, Here, we're going to show everyone that we're bigger and better. And they fastened, they nailed Saul's body to the walls of the city so everyone can come by and see Saul was dead. And display it before everyone. Now, you said, this isn't a very hopeful message. Well, we always want to end in a hopeful thing. That's where I want to end it up here, is the honoring of Saul's good days. The honoring of Saul's good days. You know that when Saul started, he didn't start off bad, he started off good. And while he was in his good days, he made an impression. He helped some people. Some of them was Jabesh Gilead. You remember the story of Jabesh Gilead? Saul had just become king, um, and (laughs) the enemy had surrounded Jabesh Gilead, and they had said, hey, why don't you surrender your city? And they said, What's your terms? Your terms are you come out and we'll pluck out your eyes. And so they said, Well, give us seven days to think on that. And so they went and sent a crier up to Saul and said, Please help us. And Saul gathered up an army and helped defend Jabesh Gilead. That was 40 years ago. And the people never forgot it. So now that Saul's body's hanging in the wall, The men of Jabesh Gilead kind of do uh, a secret mission. They get some of their most valiant men. And in the middle of the night, they sneak up to the Philistine city, take Saul's body off, and take it away in the middle of the night. They risk their life for a dead body. Why? Because they want to honor the king because he had done something good for them. You know, it doesn't matter how hopeless someone's life is. You've affected someone for good. There has been good that you've done in your life somewhere. I'm sure if you look, even if you feel like you're the most pathetic loser who's scumbag of the earth, there's probably somewhere you've done good. Now, most of you aren't the scum of the earth. I understand that. You're you're the best people in the world. You're in church. You're, You're the people who love the Lord. But you've done good to someone somewhere. You've been a help. Maybe you passed out a track and you don't even know that someone who received the track is saved. And they're following the Lord and you might not even know it. Maybe there was just that one time where you put your arm around someone and said, I'm praying for you or I'm thankful for you. Said a good word in a time of, of their depression that was just what they needed to move forward another day. You know, your life is not in a bubble. But there's always things. You know... They say that the person who wrote the song, Count Your Many Blessings, name them one by one, that the the idea of the song is that this man was about ready to commit suicide. He was a preacher, worked in the ministry, but he felt that, you know, things were so hopeless and things were so gone that he wanted to commit suicide, but he knew he didn't want to discourage his family. So what he did is he started to write a letter to his family and said, even though I feel that it's best to take, to count my life, to... Uh, stop my life. I want to let you know that my life wasn't all bad, but there was some good things. So he began to take pen and paper and begin to list one by one the good things that God had done in his life and list them and list them. And several pages later, he looked and said, you know what? There's so much good in my life. There's no way I could commit suicide. And that's where that song, Count Your Blessings, named them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. You understand when you get to the most hopeless point in your life. To take a pen and paper and start saying what's good in your life. I even use that as a counseling technique and say what's good about your life? What's going on good? Is there something good? You know and the more that you think about it. The more that you find there is something good. I mean are you alive? Well that's good. Do you have a house? Did you eat? Do you have somebody somewhere that maybe loves you? Do you have air? Do you have a TV show you like? Do you have a book? I mean, is there something that's good somewhere? And the more that you're honest with yourself and say, you know what, this wasn't that bad, and this wasn't that bad, and the Cowboys won something one time, you know. (laughs) Find something. You know, a lot of times people like to think of the negative. They look at their life and see everything that's bad. And they fail to miss the good things that are all about them. The life is not made out of bad things. The life is made out of things that God has given to us that is good. Every good gift coming from above. And God has done so much for us. And the greatest thing that he has ever done for us is sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay for your sins and for mine. And that God has been so good to allow that to happen. To give us the free gift of salvation, full, free, and forever for all that believe. Dear friend, if you've never come to the place where you've asked Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, let me tell you, the hope that you have is in Jesus. He could forgive you of all of your sins, to wash you white as snow, to forgive you of everything you've ever done wrong. Dear friend, if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, what you need to do is look up and see that there's a God of hope. And if you're struggling with depression, you're struggling with thoughts, ask for help. There is someone that cares enough for you who would be glad to help you. There's enough people that will take it seriously. And let me tell you that there's enough people that care enough for you that they won't laugh at you or won't count it, but they want to help you if they just knew about it. And I want to let you know there's hope no matter where you are. We have a great God. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus. And I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time